Well, welcome everyone to another KCOG, the mix at Get Ready with um, Brother Carlos Carr. I am uh, Walter Vincent Brooks, and I am the editor of the Brooks Report. The Brooks Report's been around probably, oh, between five and eight, nine years now. And I'm always appreciative of working with Carlos. He's been the engineer and the mix master. I can't do any of this tech stuff. But I do think that I have a little bit to contribute in terms of up-to-date information I'm looking at myself in this uh, feedback video, and for some reason, I, I oh, I know what I got to do. There we go. There, yeah. you, there you go. Yeah, I, I forget that I can I can move this camera once I I set it up. Yeah, I was just looking like I really was literally a talking head there. Um, I'm getting 20 minutes per show, and. What I want my listeners to understand is you're going to hear me talk a lot about a book that I have completed and it is actually in the print shop and I will have copies uh, ready for distribution uh, in the first week of October at this point. Um, the reason I'm not on this show to sell books. I'm on this show to talk about the African-American condition from a lot of different perspectives. What, what I feel I have to contribute is that my book covers every element of Black existence in this country right now. First of all, I'm just going to hold it up this once and get, get this together here. It is called... Trust No Shadows After Dark, subtitled African-American Genocide in the United States of America. Now, I don't, I'm not sure how clearly you can see this, those of you who are looking, because I'm just looking in the, in the, I call it the feedback video screen. But I have a photograph of a number of uh, government, high government officials, including President Lyndon Johnson at the signing of the 1968 Kerner Commission on National Civil Disorders. They have, they took uh, almost uh, eight months to complete their investigation of all of the tremendous uh, activity, uh, particularly violent eruptions by the African American community uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King. For those of us that were alive at that time, that may have been possibly one of the most scariest times in this country in the last 50 years, for sure, because we, our people, we were righteously uh, outraged that this man of peace and love, uh, who only really wanted the best for America, had been brutally uh, gunned down. You know, it's kind of like, well, if you, you, you don't want to work with Dr. Martin Luther King, well, 
you know, who, who, who amongst black people do you want to work with? Who are you going to listen to? Now, in this photograph, I sold it up one more time. There is a, a two-sentence inscription that came from the actual document that Kerner Commission on Civil uh, Disorders. And it's, it's um, here's what it says. This is what they said in, in March 1968. Technically, I just, <laughs> I just found out recently, it's February 29th, 1968, but that's because it was a leap year. So had it not been uh, 68, it would have been March 1st. So we're not going to split that hair. Our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Race prejudice has shaped our history decisively. It now threatens to affect our future. That is fundamentally the theme of what I'm looking at in my book. I'm basically taking a historical perspective on the African-American condition. How did we get to where we are today? So I'm not just saying this is, this is what's going on, this is what's wrong, this is what's bad, blah, 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 blah. But I'm trying to capture the data. I'm trying to show this is a progression of white supremacist social policies against our people from slavery to emancipation all throughout the 20th century. And here we are in the 21st century uh, in September, 2021. Now, the back, you can see the back, it's just got my, my picture on it. Here's how I describe myself so you'll understand where I'm coming from. Walter Vincent Brooks is an African-American journalist, social research investigator, and a community activist. And this is what's important to me. With over 50 years of service, in the 400 years war against white supremacy and racism in the United States of America. That is my handle. I'm not the greatest, I'm not the smartest. I don't have a college degree. I don't have a lot of academic cheese behind my name, but I have been fighting on behalf of the black community in the United States for the last 50 years. And I've learned some things both through life experiences, decades of historical, political, social research. And my book is essentially trying to, to move us to where we are right now. So here's where we are, here's how we got here. And then I think what is going to separate my approach to current events and analysis, how to look at things, I am very, very committed to standing on my truth. You hear people say this a lot, and I'm going to speak my truth, stand on my truth. And I am saying now 
this is where I think this is going to wind up if there is not some major, major, major uh, interventions and changes of attitude and approach, not just on behalf of white folks, black folks, because if America goes south, and I don't mean south like Confederacy, I mean south like Nazi Germany. We're, we, are, we, are, we are a population that for all intent and purposes is still very much a captive population. We're not going nowhere. Right now, with the uh, outcome of uh, Haiti, which was all, just has got to be the most godforsaken blasted bad luck country, certainly on this half of the earth. And then they get hit, they get their president assassinated by what is now apparently the drug cartel was moving so much drugs through Haiti that the, the president must have done something twisted to them and they had him killed. So here you've got Colombian drug cartel sending their own Hispanic assassins to Haiti to kill the president of Haiti so that because he, apparently he's interfering with their business. But even more, right on the heels of that, you have an earthquake where half the country's already pretty much living outside. Now it's just gone and as of me talking today, over 15,000 Haitians have gotten from Haiti to Mexico, and then once in Mexico, walked to the Mexican border, crossed over into Texas, and you have on American soil, a world-class refugee camp. I'm not talking about American homeless. Yeah, we got tens of thousands of our own citizens who are homeless. These people have, have just come with nothing and all they're hoped for is literally they'll be arrested. <laughs> They'd rather come to America and be arrested and put in a immigration cell in hopes of one, having some place to stay, having some food to eat, having some kind of care for their children then stay home. I have spent decades clocking all this. And so when I talk to people about what I think is coming, you know, when you're writing a book and, and my book may be on a shelf somewhere, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to get one shot at somebody hopefully picking it up, seeing the cover and going, well, let me see what it says on the back. That's what most of us do. Here's what I wrote on the back. This is the, 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 the essence of what I am about and why I've written this book. On the back cover, it says, it can't happen here. How many millions of European Jews must have said those very words as they watched Adolf Hitler and the Nazi human death machine fall upon them. And why is it that so many Americans really think it can never happen here? Trust no shadows after dark. 
African-American genocide in the United States of America is the conversation. We use that word all the time. Well, we need to have a conversation. This book is the conversation whose time has finally come. This forensic investigation of the expanding social death and deterioration of the African-American people in America is a groundbreaking new path of inquiry and research. Brooks methodically establishes why the total elimination of the African-American population, did you hear what I said? The total elimination, meaning they're gonna have to kill all of us. The total elimination of the African-American population has become the only recourse left for sustained dominance of white supremacy in the United States. They're not going to be able to keep this system going the way it has gone since 1619, as long as we're alive. For many years, I used to think that as an American citizen, I'm an African, I'm an African American, and the thorn in our side was white supremacy and racism. That if it was just but for that white supremacist attitude and racism, our people, we would just soar. I have since come to believe that I'm looking, that I was looking at it from the wrong perspective. White supremacy is not the thorn in our side. We have been the thorn in white supremacy side since 1619, since they first brought 20 black people and we came out of that boat and set foot, stepped on American soil. Today, what we're seeing has been coming because we have never stopped fighting to be free of slavery and then after slavery to, to really truly manifest all of the rights and privileges that were supposed to be ours as Americans. We've never stopped fighting. And now the world has turned, certainly since World War II, the world has turned now to where progressively world events, world issues, world politics are affecting America to such a degree that there is a, a growing fear that Donald Trump tapped to the point of 74 million people trying to reelect him in 2020, he has tapped their fear that their day is up, that they're going to lose their place. This is, these, these are the catchphrases amongst the Trumpites and these conservatives and these racists. They say, we're not going to be replaced. They actually believe that they will be either obliterated kicked out of America. But but look at look at these are the people that have dominated, and I mean dominated in 
every aspect of our existence since 1619 for 400 years. We haven't been able to breathe because of racism. And here we are, like all of a sudden, they're talking about, you ain't gonna replace us. You ain't gonna whoop our behind. And it's like, well, where the heck is all this coming from? We've never asked that. We've never wanted that. We just wanted some equity and parity. So to uh, just to continue with the, uh, the little inscription on the back, making his case truth by truth, Brooks's final summation may be the scariest vision of the American future that exists in contemporary literature. Trust No Shadows After Dark is the fresh, unsparing, and deeply thought-provoking analysis of racial relations in the United States badly needed today. How we got to where we are now and what's coming next? I'm, I'm trying to say, if, if, if you stay with me and see the arc of, of history and, and social issues in America, then I think my argument for what's coming next is going to make a great deal of sense to you. Time is running out for all Americans who really believe that it can't happen here. Intelligently written, of course, I think it is. I think you'll find it in plain English. I'm not a PhD. I'm not, I'm not writing this book because it's, it's my, my doctoral thesis where I've got to have all of this heavy academic language. I want everyday folks to read this. If you, if you can function at a high school level of education, you, you're going to be able to read my book. Um, time is running out for all Americans who really believe that it can't happen here. Intelligently written in plain English, all readers will be enabled to judge for themselves. I am not telling anybody what to think. I'm just, I'm setting the table. I'm laying it out. You will make your own decisions. But the reason that I, I say I'm not shilling my book, I'm not, I'm going to talk about it, but I'm always going to talk about it in the context of contemporary issues. So if you look at the table of contents, you will see that I am covering all of the bases of Black existence. And then what I want to do, so, so those of you who, who, who tune in to listen, we, I want to dialogue with you. It doesn't matter what your interests are. Everybody, some of us, we specialize in education. We are fighting the education. We're fighting to get a better education for our children. Uh, others, we're concerned with the prison movement and, and trying to deal with this mass incarceration. Others, a, a great many of us, it's about economics. So here is my table of contents to show you the subject matter in which I'm addressing and, and, and putting it all, you know, the young, young hip hop, they call it remix. I am mixing up all of these life sustaining areas of black existence and trying to lay down a coherent, big picture of how we got to where things are today and where they're going. So of course, I have my introduction. 
because I'm talking about genocide, I felt that I need to start my chapter one with a deep analysis of the greatest book ever written about the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the six million Jews murdered by Adolf Hitler and, and the Nazi government that he, uh, he created. And by the way, as I always like to point out to people, never forget Adolf Hitler was elected. He was elected. He, it wasn't a military takeover of the German government. In Germany, unlike America, in America, a president and vice president, they run together on the same ticket. Democratic, president, vice president, Republican, vice president, president. Okay, in Germany, their system, the head person, the chancellor runs all by himself. And then the second position, what we would call the vice presidency is a separate election. Adolf Hitler successfully was elected the equivalent of vice president of, of the United States. So once he got into power as an elected official, the chancellor is what they call their president. He died in office, which elevated Hitler to the top job. And normally it would be now we're going to have a new election to pick a new chancellor. And Adolf Hitler would have been in position to run for the top job in election but he was Adolf Hitler, so he canceled the government, he canceled the Congress, and just started doing his thing that led to World War II and the extermination of six million Jewish people. So Dr. Raul Hilberg, he wrote what is considered the most definitive analysis of the Holocaust, it's called the destruction of the European Jews. Now, interestingly enough, when I discovered his book, he ends his book with a very short reference to, if something like what happened with the Nazis and the Jews were to ever happen again on this planet, where a major advanced, wealthy, industrial democracy because that's what Germany was until Hitler took over. If something like that was to ever happen again, in his estimation, it, would pro it may well be the United States government wanting to exterminate the African-American people. He said that in 1961. And when I discovered his book, I was like, well, wait a minute. I found his book in 1975 and a lot of the things that he had to say about that, I was like, there's a lot of this already in play. That's the seed for what has become my book many years, almost 40, 45 years later. I mean, this isn't something you just sit down and write about. It, it can't be. As I say in my introduction, I have to overcome my own, like, am I just being negative? Am I just like, I don't have any hope left, you know? And, and, and I had to overcome that. I, you know, I consider myself an educated uh, person. I, I think I've had a good life. That doesn't mean I haven't dealt with racism and so forth, but hey, 
I didn't come up on the streets and, and, and all these other things. So there's that sense of, uh, as Dr. King and somebody, the sense of possibilities, the sense that, you know, well, we can, if we just kind of keep our nose to the grindstone, we can make some things happen. And certainly when I look out, I mean, look at from Oprah to Jay-Z to Tyler Perry, we got billionaires now and, and, and the amount of presence on, you know, I'm almost 75 years old. I can remember in my childhood, there were no black people on TV, period. You could watch American television in Seattle, Washington, where I grew up, seven days a week from seven in the morning when the, the, the programming started to midnight and you not seven days a week for years and you're not gonna see a single black face. So the kinds of things that I'm reflecting on have to do with what I've researched, what I've lived, what I've participated in, the different types of, of I'm a former Black Panther for about a year and a half in Denver back in 1970 and 71. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran, you know, a lot, of, a lot of water under my bridge, but it has helped me and yet I, I don't hesitate to say it took me 40 years to get this thing out because I, I've had to fight my own sense of like, surely it's not, things aren't going to be this bad. Well, the way I describe it uh, is simply this. Those of you that care enough to even listen to a program like this, you're, you're informed, you're interested, you're active, otherwise, you know, you'd be watching some basketball right now or whatever. You know about global warming. I'm not gonna explain that. You know about it, you know what it is. You know what climate change is now. You've seen from, from the west, west coast burning up on a regular basis now and burning more every year. You've seen that on the east coast, the hurricanes, they're just doing more and more damage. Look at New York City. New York City, they had um, they had something like 75 people killed in, in New York from, from flooding rainwater. People forget that city sewage systems can only hold so much water. It can only flush so much water out of your city. And they said something like 30 or 40 people died in their basements because they had no idea that so much water could hit New York City, they wouldn't be able to get out of the basement and get up to the first floor before they drowned, before that water filled the whole basement up and they were gone. All of these things are happening. Well, what I compare that, I use that as an analogy to say, we haven't paid enough attention to white supremacy warming white supremacy, climate change. Because all the years that we are focused on trying to just improve ourselves personally, improve our family, improve our communities, all of these things are taking up so much of our time, we're not really focusing on the, these atmospheric, social atmospheric changes taking place in America. Number one, it is now official the white race is dying in America. Now we've known it 
for years that the numbers of black people, the numbers of Latino people, now um, the, the 2020 census is is got Asians. Asians are now uh, something like 25 million Asians. We used to think of them as being a very small, no. Everybody's numbers are increasing except the Caucasian people. They are officially they are officially on the downside. You ever roll up a, a, a roller coaster? You know, that, that, that rise, you go up and up and up and you just, your stomach is starting to twist because you know, once you get to the top of that first, that first peak, you gonna fly, fly down. And that's why we ride roller coasters. I love them, okay? The white race has peaked their population has peaked. They are officially going down and they will not be coming back up. Whereas a roller coaster will go up and down in terms of population. That is the most frightening thing to them. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, um, so I mentioned white supremacy, warming, white supremacy, climate change, starting number one with the fact that they are now data proven to be depopulating, okay? And it's, it's really amazing at this time to, to, to get a sense of the people that we're dealing with. Look at the COVID issue and, and how many whites are dying because they don't wanna vaccinate, they don't wanna get a mask. They're, they're, they are so obsessed with what is generally referred to as personal liberties. You can't make me wear a mask. Okay, so you'd rather risk killing your whole family or your grandma, breathing on them and passing on some COVID that you don't even know you have because you also won't take a test to see if you got the stuff. And, and, and then look at, I'm telling you, I'm just clocking all over the country, Carlos, People are like fist fighting. They're going into restaurants and the people are saying, you're going to have to wear a mask. Now they want to beat up the hostess. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, I in my lifetime, not since 1968, 69, have I seen so many Americans so uptight and tense and wanting to kill somebody, wanting to whoop somebody's behind. It's like they're, they're just, everybody's walking around like uh, there was a, I can't remember the rapper, but I remember the line. His, his tagline was, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. And it's like, there are millions of people walking around America like that. Yes. Uh, and so yes. we have to think about when I say white supremacy warming, white supremacy climate change, they're heading in a direction that is not remotely going to be cooperative and, and peaceful and fulfilling. Whereas we as African Americans, we're looking at our, our latest generational successes and in, in terms of money makers and Television, television is full of black people now. I, I just, I, you can't, 
find a channel anymore hardly where there aren't black shows, you know, black theme shows and, and, you know, and we're moving and grooving. But what my book is saying is that the two greatest exterminations of the 20th century were the, the extermination of 6 million Jews between 1933 and 1945. And then at the turn of the century, around 1915, in Turkey, one and a half million Armenians were exterminated when the Turkish people turned on them. And what I found out is that both of those target peoples had been socially integrated prior to being wiped out. This is something that our people don't understand. The assumption for a lot of African-Americans is that if, if new areas of, of opportunity and interaction are opening up, well, this is a good thing because now we, we have a shot to, to move higher up, uh, move into neighborhoods that, you know, 30 years ago would have never allowed black people, uh, move into jobs and, and, and leadership positions. We have the greatest number of African-American elected officials up to and including our first African-American president for two terms. So that's why I say it's difficult for our people to go, well, how can things be as bad as you're trying to say they are Walter Brooks, Walter Vincent Brooks, when we're, we're moving and grooving and, and, hey, as they say in the crime thrillers, we're taking down scores and, you know, we're doing stuff. We're getting stuff done, you know? And I'm like, but you have to understand none of what we're doing today, as successful as we are compared to, hell, just 20 years ago, None of that is a vaccination against genocide. In fact, a lot of our successes that we're, we're engaged in are producing side effects amongst our, our African-American population that is kind of uh, like an anesthetic. If you've ever had surgery and you've been on that table, the first thing the, anesthesi the anesthesiologist does is he puts his mask over your face and then he says, okay, I want you to start counting backwards from 100 and you'll start and probably somewhere in the, in the 80s, all of a sudden you out. All the sleep. I think. All the sleep. I think generally speaking, that's kind of a metaphor for what's happening here. So in the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to finish reading my table of contents because I want people to understand it ain't about talking about my book, but my book is talking about every aspect of black life in America. So the first chapter is the destruction of the European Jews. The Holocaust speaks to African-Americans. What are our takeaways as black Americans in the United States for what happened to the Jews in the, under Nazi Germany? Chapter two is titled, 
zip codes and concentration camps, black living spaces and social death. I will repeatedly bring you back to the phrase social death. So what the, what the Nazis did when they decided we're going to kill every Jew in Germany and every Jew in Europe, once they had segregated them, they had to pull them out of the society, first of all, because they were integrated, pull them out. Now we can put you in a ghetto where ain't nobody going to be in there but you. Now we can starve you. Now we can kill you at will. Now we can turn you into slave labor. Now we can do all the stuff that led to the procedurals of mass murder. Okay, well, I say my chapter two starts zip codes and concentration camps because what's going to happen to black people is going to happen right where we're at right now. There's not going to be let's ship all the blacks from one side of the country to the other and put them on some kind of reservation or some kind of giant concert. There's 50 million of us. Okay, so whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen to your neighborhood your community, this community. And I'm analyzing how did it happen that so many of our people are just busted out in all of these hyper ghetto communities? Mm. How is it that we're, we are more segregated today than we were, we were 70 years ago when mm. you know we were fighting against segregation? All the blacks live over here. All the whites live over here. All the whites got all the money and all the niceties and the nice homes and nice streets. And all the blacks over here ain't got squat. Well, that's what it was 70 years ago. Well, guess what? Cross the country and look at these communities and ask yourself, if the civil rights movement supposedly broke this up, then how is it that we're more ghettoized today than we were 70 years ago? Mm. Chapter three, never show them the money. Black economic development and social death. I'm, I'm, I'm giving the whole arc of how have they, we take home, the African-American population takes home between $1.2 trillion and I think now it's up to almost $1.5 trillion a year and we can't keep 5% of that money in the collective African-American pocket. Money comes through our hands like water. If I pay the rent, that rent ain't going to somebody black. If I pay a car payment, the car payment ain't going to a black bank. Um, business loans, just you name it, business-wise, we have to look at what's taking place. How did we get here? Why have we never been able to resurrect the kinds of collaborative economies that we had at the turn of the century in the 1910s and 1920s? What happened between then and 100 years later to where our people can't keep any money? I, I remind people of, uh, as my perfect example is uh, Chris Rock made his brilliant documentary called Good Hair about the African-American women's hair care and beauty business. 
African-American women spend $10 billion a year on their hair and their faces and their body, and barely 5% of that money goes to Black-owned businesses. Can you imagine, can you imagine the Chinese or Jewish or any other ethnic group in America spending $10 billion and the entire market is in their hands? All that money is coming from Chinese women. All that money is coming from Latino women. All that money is coming from Jewish women. But none of the money is spent on Chinese people or Jewish people. That's, that's an impossibility with them. They would never allow that. We are allowing that in every phase of our economic existence. Our money's going to somebody else. So I really need to talk about that. And I want to show. Now, don't forget um, the fact of, of wealth. See, we have finally arrived at the point where a great many African-Americans understand now it's not your paycheck, it's your wealth. You can have a paycheck, a good one, every month for I don't know how many years, but the moment you lose your job, if you didn't save any money, if you didn't invest any money, if you didn't put money into something that was going to build value, uh, a home being the first of all, we're still the least uh, uh, amount of people with uh, home mortgages in America. And that's always been that first step to say, I'm going to buy a home. I'm going to pay X amount for it now. And in 25 years from now, this home's going to be worth two or three times what I paid for it. That's what I'll pass on to my kids. So I'll have something to pass on of value. The overwhelming majority of African-American people die and don't leave a penny to their children. We don't transfer wealth from one generation to the next, and we've been here 400 years, and we still can't do it. Chapter four, I'm taking on the educational system, controlling the black mind, education and social death. I'm looking at the educational system. You know, we, we kind of prorate our quote unquote advancement in education with the 1954 uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka decision that integrated the schools. The schools for the majority of black children in America today are more segregated than they were in 1954. How in the hell did that happen? Mm -hmm. I thought the schools were integrated mm -hmm. and I'm taking on the whole thing. Um, I'm just going to knock these out in, in about 90 seconds and then give it back to you. Uh, no chapter problem. five, now I'm doing the criminal justice prison industrial complex, recycled slaves. That's what, that's what mass incarceration has created, a recycling, this continual recycling of prisoners. Uh, I, have a, I have a quote where in New York State, New York State, all the prisons are in the rural area in what's called upstate New York. The northern portion of New York is all rural. They went from two prisons in the 1970s to 18 prisons today, yet 25,000 inmates a year are sent to those prisons, and they come from just seven neighborhoods in New York City. 
Seven neighborhoods supply 25,000 new prisoners a year. 23,000 come back every year. And of the 23,000 who come back, 15,000 of that 23,000 will be reincarcerated within one year. So seven neighborhoods in New York City supply a total of 40,000 inmates like clockwork year in and year out. And I'm really looking at how does that work? How have they managed to do that? And and we still accept it. Yeah. Uh, chapter six, this is the one that's probably the, the, the biggest issue for most black people in general, community violence, black on black violence. Mm. Well, we all know that the African-American man is America's boogeyman. Mm-hmm. We are the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Well, I titled my chapter six, the suicidal boogeyman. Mm. Why is it the suicidal boogeyman? Because we don't kill nobody but other black people. How are we the boogeyman to the white race when we don't kill white people? We just kill each other. And yet that killing of ourselves has created this image that we're all armed, we're all dangerous. And of course, this is the basis for the the just endless killings of innocent black people. When they roll up on us, they're rolling up ready for war. When they roll up on somebody, a white person in the suburbs, they're yes, ma'am, no, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes, what's going on, sure, and all that. But but the amazing thing, you know, and and forgive me, don't don't chase me down Crips, don't chase me down Bloods or anybody that's got their own crew, but I'm constantly asking, how come they never shoot Crips? Huh. They never shoot Bloods. They ne- they don't kill gangbangers. They kill just black, innocent civilians who are already terrified of the police. You know, they're not. They they kill people that ain't talking back to them, and and all this. Look at all these killings. And I'm like, I'm not saying go kill. You know the drug dealers or anything, but I'm saying, how is it that they're just killing all of these really innocent, scared, frightened people? You know, where is that coming from? So the suicidal boogeyman, African-American, self-destruction and social death. Chapter seven, now I'm going to the family, relationships, marriage, everything, unnaturally yours. You know, we know we normally would end a letter or a love note saying, naturally yours, I love you. Well, I'm saying unnaturally yours, African-American love, family, and social death. I'm taking the whole thing apart. Chapter eight, are African-Americans the next Jews? That is going to be a shocking chapter. Are we next? Are we are we setting ourselves up to be the next great extermination in the in in the modern advanced industrial Western world? Are we setting ourselves up for mm-hmm. five fundamental responses to genocide? And finally, chapter nine, 
genocide and African-American national security. If these people ever go all the way off the edge and it is increasingly looking like they're creeping closer and closer to the edge of that cliff, what are we gonna do, black people? What are we gonna do? They took, Hitler took six million Jews and wanted to kill every last one of them. If it hadn't been for America and all those countries going to Europe to fight them and Russia particularly fighting the Nazis, they may well have killed every Jew on, on, on the European continent. Mm -hmm. So my final chapter, I'm saying, here's the problem. I call it, here is the, gen the black African-American genocide problem. And I close out with, what I feel is the African-American genocide solution. How mm. are we going to protect our women and children, our communities against the most dangerous conglomeration of violent capacity within the American government and the most dangerous conglomeration of violent capacity amongst the white civilians? There's 350 million guns privately owned in America. And mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that 90 plus percent of those are in the hands of the white race. So we got to think about these things. I'm going to leave it there. I hope that those of you that, that see this uh, join me and, and let me know what particular area that, you know, so if you're into economics, I'd like to talk about it and, and share my research on black economics. If you're dealing with the community, violence, I'd like to share my research and information on community violence and, and how it, where it's coming from and so forth. So all roads lead to my book because I'm covering a 360 degree look at the African-American people. And Carlos, I thank you, sir. I think that's about my time. Yes, sir. Just, just, just go ahead and stay. I'm gonna get fish. I'm telling you, and think, think about this. Just, just along those lines. Look at all the wealthy people. Look at all the billionaires we've got. Go look at where they're investing their money. They're not investing their money in food production. They're not investing their money in in. Why is there not a a viable chain, a supermarket chain? owned by black people when when you got 50 million black people and we spend more money on food than we'll spend on damn near anything why isn't that perceived of as a good investment they're not investing in the life giving things they got us no. all buying trinkets and and and, and consumer goods and, and all this stuff and i always i always say it's it's not that you know Oprah made her money, honestly. I mean, mm -hmm. she's got $3 billion, but I'm like, but where is she investing it? Yeah, I know, you know, you can give $20 million to an HBCU and, and I, I, far, be it far from me to say, hey, that ain't nothing. But it's like, do you understand what we really need? Right. Everybody graduating, I don't care whether they graduate from Harvard or they graduate from, from Howard, they still come out needing a job. Right. They still come out, somebody needing someone to hire them, you know, so and, and, and farmland and Bill Gates is now the largest single landowner in America. 
Why What's is wrong Bill with Gates problem? buying up all the land? Because they mm-hmm. know it's going to come down to food production. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like it's like our best and our brightest with money. They're not really seeing how this is playing out. No, they're not. They're trying to direct some of their resources to these things. It's going to be chaos. Yeah. We'll, we'll continue this conversation. See, this is, now I feel today, after today's program, that uh, I, I'm, I'm settled into the, the, the groove and, and the pathway that I want to do when I do mm-hmm. my 20 minutes. Okay. So I appreciate you, Carlos. I appreciate you. Uh, a lot, brother. Well, this month, this month in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia. But there were no, there were no American, American representatives, representatives at this meeting. At this meeting. Now, now look, first of all, it's every man for every country for himself in Africa. Now they're they're not they're not thinking about us, and we'll we'll talk about that. You know, maybe next time because yeah, I'm I'm getting a little bit more hardline. I know we as African Americans. Have spent a lot of energy. We supported Mandela and against apartheid. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we we because we are the ones that were taken from Africa and stripped away from everything. So on the one hand, that created this whole Negro thing that we've had to deal with. But on the other hand, we 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 don't have a tribe that we're going to defend over all everything. We are the we are almost like the most generic black people on the face of the earth Mm -hmm. that that we always saw ourselves as identifying with everybody Mm -hmm. and that's why whether it was malcolm or marcus garvey we were the ones reaching out saying hey we're all in this together these countries have have had uh united nations uh representations you know since the since the 50s and the 60s they're not going in there saying, hey, we'd like to get some African-Americans on the agenda because, you know, we, we, we're, we are protesting their treatment. So it, it's, it's almost like every country, particularly for black countries, every country for themselves. And this, this global black uh, diaspora unity thing, in my estimation, is not working. And the African-American people, nobody's coming to help us if this thing goes bad. That's true. Well, that's the importance of Yeah, They see us living in the land of milk and honey. All of us supposed to have money dripping out of our pockets. Mm. How can you black people be in America and all of you ain't rich by now? And they don't have any sense of understanding what we lost being the ones taken out of Africa True. and sent on the other True. side of the world and then gutted of our language, our our history, our culture. We were stripped naked, literally, physically, mentally, spiritually. And uh, the rest of black people around the world, they, you know, they still speak their original languages. Mm-hmm. And or they got their own countries. That's why the Caribbean, Jamaica, all these places. Here, here's this, and I'm going to get off. I'm going to get off. DOS, descendant of slaves. I am to the point now where if I'm not dealing with descendants of slaves, I'm really not trying to deal with anybody else. Because mm-hmm. 
we are going to be the ones that are going to have to face what's coming in America. Everybody else is going to go back to their native country mm. and say, man, you got to get out of America because they're killing all them black folks. Mm. They're not going to stand with us. They're not going to stand with us because they're not standing with us now. If I asked you, what are you? And you don't say you're an African-American. You say you're a Jamaican-American. Okay, I'll take my cue. You're not one of us. And you're not going to stand and fight with us. And and so that's fine. You do you. But I'm getting out of the business of being worried about what's happening to black people all over the world. Because what's facing us has got to start taking priority. That's true. That's how I see it. That's true. And 